Good morning. Uh, I am David Brown, and I'm usually the howdy guy. So if you're here consistently, I'm usually the one that welcomes you and uh, invites you to prepare your hearts for worship. And today I get the opportunity and the privilege to, uh, to teach the Word of God. And uh, if you've been outside this morning, you know that creation is already worshiping because it is one of those days. And, uh, you know, I wish I was a professor that could take class outside and uh, we could worship outside. But, but I tell you, what a, what a day. So would you all pray with me as we prepare our hearts? So, Father God, we, um, we love you. Father, this is your church. These are your children. This is your word, your spirit, Father, your son, your glory. Father, would you be honored this morning, you alone? Father, would you prepare our hearts to hear the word, to receive it, to be moved by it, and to apply it? And Father, um, certainly confess my inadequacies, but Father, you use broken vessels, and we're thankful that you do. So Father, we love you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. On December's Eve of 1992, um, New Year's Eve, yeah, in uh, 1992, I got engaged. And, uh, you know, I had planned this, this marvelous event where I had horses and I grew up on some land and we were going to go out on the land on horseback. I had a picnic and we were going to have a picnic and I was going to get down on one knee and I was going to propose to my wife. Of course, she was going to say yes, and we were going to live happily ever after. Well, I didn't check the weather app. And of course, part of the reason is there was no weather app because there was no cell phone, because there was no internet. So teenagers, wrap your head around that. But I did not watch the news the night before or have a sense of what the weather was going to be like. And it was freezing rain. So a storm blew in and it was sleeting. And, and I was determined though, right? And so, okay, we're gonna do this. Couldn't do the horseback, that would have been dangerous, but we just went out on the land and we had cowboy hats and parkas and cowboy boots. And uh, we walked to the meadow and uh, with the rain and the temperature and everything else, I got down on my knee and I, and I asked her to marry me. And she said, yes. And 28 years later, we have four wonderful children and, and just happily ever after we're so, very thankful. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it's good, right? So we get back to the house that night, and there are four of my buddies, and they tell Jennifer they are going to kidnap me. So they blindfold me, they take me outside, they take my jacket, they put me in a car, and they start driving. Well, this was, this was an effective blindfold. I had no idea what was going on. They put a bowling ball in my lap, which I thought was weird. I could feel them messing around with my ankle. And then they get me out of the car. They walk me. They sit me down on some steps. And they unblindfold me. And I'm at the old Denton High School field house where those were the glory days, right? That's where we used to play football. And I am chained to the pole. There's a combination lock. I don't know the combination. The bowling ball has the name Jennifer inscribed on it and it is chained around my ankle and they have, that has a padlock and they've broken the key off in the lock. They proceed to go across to the field 
and they start playing football. What was their message? What was their point? Your life has changed, my friend. All the stuff you used to do with us, all the fun you used to have, you don't get to do that anymore. Well, you know, for four single guys that didn't know a thing about marriage, I mean, they were exactly right. Everything changed. My diet changed. My TV watching changed. My schedule changed. My time changed. My hygiene changed. I mean, everything changed. And it was good. My new identity as a husband had created changes in me that were all pervasive. And I suddenly had a drive and I had an affection to be with my wife and to please my wife. This morning's text is about an identity in Christ that is meant to change everything. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So, go ahead and, and swing slides there. This is the sermon preview. This is something that John has taught me to do, and I appreciate it. A roadmap so you know where I'm taking you. So we're going to start out with a Colossians overview because we've been here for a while. And if you are a visitor here this morning, maybe you don't know where you're stepping into the story. So we'll do that. And we are at a little bit of a pivotal point in Colossians because the first couple of chapters really deal with theology and dealing with false teaching. But now we're going to move into how should one think and how should one live, right? And that's common in Pauline letters. He often teaches orthodoxy in the first part of a letter, and then he moves to orthopraxy. And today we're, we're making that shift into chapter 3. So first, you've gotta, you have to know your identity. You have to know who or whose you are, because that really does or should change everything. And then once you know who you are, you should then live accordingly. You should live out your identity in Christ. And then finally, we're going to apply the text to our life. And, and we're going to kind of do it in what would this text, what would God have us understand? What would God have us feel? And what would God have us do? And so that's going to be our, our text this morning. Now, I think we ought to have incredibly high expectations this morning. And that is absolutely not because I'm preaching. John is the preacher in our family. And I do this intermittently along with Carrie and Fred and a few others. Uh, but the reason we should have high expectations is because this isn't just any book, right? It's even different than when we study John Stott's book on Wednesday nights. This is the inspired Word of God. That it's alive and active. That there's a Holy Spirit indwelt in us that is a teacher and a helper. And so, could God... And would God do something impactful in your heart, in your mind this morning? I think he desires to, right? And so let's have high expectations that God's meeting us here this morning. That the Spirit is going to teach us this morning. And I'm going to walk away more in love and changed by what God teaches me. So let's do a review of Colossians. Uh, Paul is in prison at this time, though he does have quite a bit of freedom. And a follower of Christ named Epaphras comes to him and tells him about a church in Colossae, a Gentile church. And he basically said, these are good folks that love Jesus, but there are false teachers in their midst. And so Paul, being a disciple and an apostle and a shepherd, he writes him a letter. And in that letter, he expresses his love and he prays for him. 
Then he teaches them about the supremacy of Christ. They need to understand and know their Savior. And then throughout the letter, he's reminding them of that identity. He's reminding them of who they are in Christ. Before we reach today's text, when he begins to exhort them that their identity in Christ should impact the way they think. It should impact the way they live. He's then going to exhort godly living, certain things you put off, certain things you put on in relationships like husbands and wives and parents and children. There's a certain way to think and behave. Then he's going to finish with a charge and ultimately greeting from, from quite a few others. And so that's the letter of Colossians where we find ourselves today. But the overall theme, and when you kind of want to bookmark in your head of what is Colossians about, what would the Holy Spirit teach me through this letter? It's about the supremacy of Christ. There is no second. Christ is all. And all through this letter, it's the pervasive message. So let's go ahead and read our text this morning. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, just like when Carrie taught last week, when your verse starts with therefore, what do you got to do? You got to go back, right? You have to understand context because if you don't understand context, you have a chance of just misinterpreting and then misapplying the text. So we're going to go back. Carrie taught last week on verses 8 through 23, and this was about there are false teachers in the church that are basically saying Jesus plus experiences or Jesus plus requirements. And so ultimately, Paul throughout this letter has already been teaching about Christ. He's been reminding them of their identity in Christ. And it kind of becomes clear to me that what Paul's doing is the best way to have a defense against false doctrine is what? Is to understand good doctrine and to understand who you are. And I reflected a lot on this over the past couple of weeks as I was thinking about, about this, this verse. And I started thinking, you know, I think we can relate to this, that if, if you're a parent and if you're not a parent, imagine the parents that you had, right? And imagine yourself in junior high. Now, when people talk about the glory days, oftentimes they'll say, I would enjoy going back to college or I would enjoy going back to high school but do you ever hear anybody say that they want to go back to junior high? <laughs> Nobody wants to go back to junior high. Why? Because it's a season when you're just, puberty is in full force and you're trying to figure out who you are and suddenly peers and social media become insanely important for the, the amount of actual maturity that they have. And we see our kids begin to question they are and if you've parented kids through that junior high season you know it's it can be a little bit frightening because you're longing for them to not forget themselves you're worried about the voices that are speaking identity into their head and so what do you do you teach them over and over and over again who they are that they're fearfully and wonderfully made 
that God has great plans for them. That God will complete the work that He started in them. You tell them as a mom and a dad, I love you more than you can imagine. And there's nothing you could ever, ever do that would impact or hinder that love that would be something that you wouldn't be forgiven of, right? You're just pouring that voice into your kids because you want them to come out of that season understanding their identity. I think that's Paul. I think that's his heart is he hasn't met these believers, but he knows that they're young in the faith and he's just aching for them to not forget who they are in Christ and who Christ is. So verse one, he starts out with, if or since you have been raised up with Christ. So once again, before he gets to exhortations about godly living, he reminds them of who they are in Christ. And that if is really not an if in the Greek. It's really a sense, right? There's an assumption being made by Paul that he's speaking to believers. But I do just want to take a moment because in a church with an audience this size, I'd rather not make that assumption this morning. That maybe there's somebody here that, you know, you're here, and maybe you're searching or you know, maybe you were a parent drug, you know, a teenager, right? You're here, but you haven't quite decided if Jesus is who your parents say he is or if you're going to accept and follow him. And so I'd like to read from chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, because this is Jesus. This is the Jesus that you're hearing about this morning. It says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Did you catch that? He rescues, he transfers, he redeems, and he forgives. So if there's anything in you this morning, if you haven't made a decision for Christ, but there's anything in you that feels like I need to be rescued, that I need to be understood, that I need to be redeemed and forgiven, let this be the morning that Jesus becomes your Savior. But moving to the text again, Paul is assuming that he's speaking to believers. And he reinforces, so he speaks to their identity in verse 1. He says, since you've been raised with Christ. Then in verse 3, because we kind of bookend your identity and your identity before you know, I guess before and after Paul actually gives his exhortation about the way we're to think and the way we're to live. And, uh, and then in verse 3, he says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. So you've been raised with Christ and you've died with Christ. What do you know about the tense of those verbs? Those are past tense verbs, right? That these are events that have already happened to a believer in Christ, that you've already died. You had an identity. It was the identity that needed to be rescued, that needed to be redeemed, but that has happened. So now there's this new identity. And so in Christ, you're a new creation, right? The old is past and the new has come. Now we're not glorified yet, which, which the text is going to get to, but these are past tense events that Paul is exhorting them to. He said the same thing in 2.12. He says, Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. So again, 
all through this letter, Paul is teaching Christ and identity in Christ, and he does that again in our text because to understand how we're to live, you have to understand who you are. And you may have to be reminded of who you are because we all need to be reminded sometimes. Sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we get busy. Sometimes we get sad. Sometimes we get discouraged or disillusioned. And we need to be reminded of our true identity and not believe the lies that Satan would speak to us. And we all have individual and unique lies that Satan speaks to us. But it's not who we are in Christ. And so we need to be reminded of that. And then in verse 4, he says, When Christ, who is our life. Now, I thought there was a, there's a commentator named Barclay. And he had this to say, he said, Sometimes we say of a man, music is his life. Sport is his life. He lives for his work. Such a man finds life and all that life means in music, in sport, in work, as the case may be. For the Christian, Christ is his life. Jesus Christ dominates his thoughts and fills his day. And so I think, it again, in, in, a, in just a pause and a reflection, the people that know you best and the people that know me best, would they say that this is true? Would they say that, that Christ is my life, that my relationship with him is, is, is preeminent? in the decisions that I make, in the way that I spend money, in the things that I buy, in the entertainment I choose, in the hobbies that I pick, in is Christ my life? Because Paul is, is again, in, he's just reinforcing and reinforcing and reinforcing to the Colossians amidst this false doctrine, remember who you are and who you ought to be. So, he's spoken of past events, but now in verse 4, he begins to speak of what has not yet happened yet, but will happen. He says, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Remember in verse 3, when it says that your life is hidden in Christ? Well, Christ has done more for humanity than ever, anybody ever has or ever will. But does the world recognize that? Christ was God in the flesh, but does the world understand that? And the reality is Christ's true identity to, to many in the world is hidden. And our true identity at this point is largely hidden, not here, but out there in the world there's this sense of meekness, this sense of humility, this sense of servitude. That's exactly who we are because that's who Christ was. But is that everything we will be? So when Christ is revealed, when he comes back in glory, will there be any doubt as it relates to who this Jesus was? Absolutely not. When it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that, that's not a hypothetical like that's a real moment in time when Christ will come back 
and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It will not be hidden any longer. It will be proclaimed for eternity. And so will our true identity. That what Paul was calling us to, this way to live, this way to think, this way to operate, it's true in us now. It's just, it's just hidden in many instances. But it won't always be. That we're journeyers now, we're pilgrims now, but our true identity is we're princes. And we're princesses. We're adopted children of a holy God. And there'll come a day when that identity will be fully fully known. So, again, when you, when you think of, of the junior high example, right, when you think of that age when you want your kids, when you implore your kids to understand their identity and who they are, that's Paul's heart here. That's what he's been trying to do is this is who the Colossians are in Christ. Dina, this is your identity in Christ. This is who you really are. And now that you understand that, Paul now is going to give some imperatives. He's going to give some exhortations in the way that we should think, in the way that we should live. But it's important to understand the distinction that as Paul begins to give instructions to exhort the way that we think and behave, this is coming from the identity that we already have. This is not the identity we are trying to earn. And that's in, in contrast to the false teachers and that's in contrast to a lot of the legalism that exists in this world, at times even within the church. Sometimes we can get trapped in our own minds of thinking that I'm not good enough but I'll do better tomorrow and if I can just do better, God will love me a little more. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do better, I'm gonna be better and then God will be able to. And the reality is this identity this redemption, this dying, and this being raised has already happened. Think of the prodigal. Was, was the father concerned with the prodigal cleaning himself up before he came back? What was he waiting on? Just, just come back, as you are. Dirty, muddy, tired, broken, disillusioned, discouraged, just come back, right? So the Father and our identity in the Father is not contingent on our performance. And there's got to be more than one person, more than just me, that needs to hear that this morning. Even as we begin to move to the way that we're ought, we ought to think and the way that we, that we ought to live. So verse, the second part of verse 1 through verse 2 this is where Paul begins to command us to do certain things. So he says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Two imperatives and then a contrast between things above and things below. But let's look first at the commands. Let's look at the imperatives. So the first one says, keep seeking. And, and it's this idea, again, by the way, John and Brian, they study Greek. They have degrees in Greek. They know Greek. I read commentators that know Greek. I haven't studied Greek, so I'm a man of the people, right? But there are, there's so much out there 
for us, us for us to understand, right? Exactly what's there. So it's an imperative, a verb, present tense, active, right? I listened to a Piper sermon on this particular verse, and it's an intense and continuous focus towards an object. An intense and continuous focus towards something, right? It, it, it's almost, it's, it's what drives us. If you think of the verse where it says the love of Christ compels, right? That, that compulsion to do something. If you've ever known an addict, if you've ever been an addict, it's a tragic state, right? Because almost every day, almost every moment of every day, they don't want to go back to the addiction. They see the damage that it caused. They see the brokenness. They're living it out. And yet there is this, there is this disease. There is this compulsion that takes them back. Well, that's the absolute negative manifestation of this drive. The positive manifestation is, is that this understanding of our identity in Christ, this understanding of Christ and who he is, this existence of the Holy Spirit in our life, it, it simply compels me to focus this way, to think this way, to be this way every day. And then he says, and set your mind on things above and not on things that are on the earth. Well, the idea of mind is, is honestly broader than just thoughts. It's, it's bigger than just what I'm, what I'm thinking right now. It really has to do with heart, right? It has to do with what's going on inside of me. So there's the drive, the compulsion to do things today. And then there's the affections that often influence that drive of what, I, what am I really in love with? And so Paul is exhorting them, this drive in your heart need to be set above and not below. So I was trying to think of, of a picture. I was trying to think of an analogy of, of what this looks like. And, and you're going to think this is funny, but this is, this is what I thought about. That is my younger brother's dog, Sadie. She's a black lab, and she is staring intently at that ball. I've never known a dog that is more intense to staring and playing fetch than that dog. And, and John, you tell me if I'm lying. I'm not exaggerating. If you held that ball for an hour, that dog would do nothing but sit there in front of you and stare at that ball. It's all Sadie thinks about. It's all Sadie lives for. They have to convince us when we're outside, you know, they give a pool and it's a nice summer day and it's hot. They have to tell people to stop throwing the ball because Sadie runs herself into hyperventilation because all she thinks, the moment we arrive at Bill's house, Sadie comes up, drops the ball at your feet. She'll give John 15 minutes. If he's not game, she moves to me. Then she moves to my dad. It's all that dog thinks about, but just look, look at that dog. That's a picture of what drive and affection for Christ should look like in us. That it simply just, it, it, it's, it's with me when I awake in the morning. It's with me as I go through my day, as I make all of these decisions. It's just with me. It compels me to want to honor him and want to love him and want to obey him. Even when I fail, it compels me to want to confess. It, it, it compels me to want to be better, to be different, to be reminded of the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. It just, it moves me. 
That's, that's what Paul's talking about. But that compulsion, that drive can be centered on good things or bad things. And sometimes it's not even good and bad because sometimes it's not that easy. Sometimes it's best things and better things, right? So I thought it might be good just to look at some examples to see what some earthly things have looked like biblically that just weren't clear sin, right? And then we're going to look at at some heavenly-minded examples. So look at the first one, Mark 10, 21 through 22. This is the rich young ruler, right? This is a, a young man who... I mean, all indication from Scripture are he was, he was faithful. He was sincere as his faith. I mean, he, he says that he's kept all the commandments all his life, and, and we don't know that to be true, but I don't think he would say that if there wasn't a sincere attempt to have lived a righteous life according to the law. But Christ saw something in him. He saw an idol, right? So looking at him, Jesus felt a love I think that's what Jesus feels towards us when he sees the idols in our life. And he said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. That this was a young man who was in many areas of his life trying to do the right thing. But there was an idol in his life. There was something that compelled him with greater drive and passion than Christ did. And Christ saw it, and he pointed it out, which has to make us stop just for a moment and think, is there any idol in my life? Is there anything that compels me with greater drive than Christ does? And what might it look like for Christ to redeem me from that? What about uh, Peter? But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's, right? Well, think of that moment. I mean, Peter had followed Christ. He had left everything. He just wanted Christ to be king. But he wanted Jesus to be a certain type of king. And at the thought that Jesus wouldn't be the type of king that he wanted and expected, Peter, in essence, rebuked Christ. (laughs) And he got rebuked because Jesus said, Peter, you're missing what God intends to do here. There is a higher way. There's a higher calling. Can we be the same way? That when we look at versions of our life, God, I want to bless you and honor you out of my abundance. (laughs) My expectation is I'm going to be faithful with the abundance. But what if God chooses scarcity? Is that okay? God, I want to honor you with my success. I want to honor you with my health. I want to honor you with my... Sometimes that's not God's plan. In our life in 2004, we had finished two years of training to go to be missionaries in Mexico. And we went with the idea of a one-way ticket. We thought we would be there, you know, just raise our kids there. And we were there three weeks. And we get a call that Jennifer's mom has been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so we told the doctors, let us know when we need to come home in two years to the day. They said, if you want to care for her, you need to come home. And, and I remember wrestling with it, not just for days, 
I mean, for years, right? Because when you go into missions, there's so much involved in what's going on in your heart and there's logistics and there's finances and there's training and all of the things that we had detached from to go do that. And then God said, we're going to go back. And I remember just being baffled, like, God, that wasn't the plan. And what did I mean by that? God, that wasn't my plan. God had a different plan, right? He brought us back and we got to care for Pam for seven months and it was an honor. We wouldn't have traded that for the world. And there were things that God got us involved in back here that if I was in Mexico, I wouldn't be here at Dina Community Church with my older brother. And so God had a plan, I just didn't get it. And that happens a lot. We're Peter. But you gotta leave room, right, for things above and not just our expectations. What about sweet Martha? Any of us ever been guilty of this? That there's work to be done. There's a dinner to be prepared, right? And she just was missing it. She was missing the Savior in her presence. And Jesus said, don't, 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 don't criticize Mary. She's thinking of the higher things right now, right? Have we ever done that? We ever missed some prayer? Missed our quiet time because we just needed to be productive? right, that something just felt like a higher calling than Christ at that moment, it's not as easy as just sin and not sin. Because many times that's easy. What's hard is seeing the things above, even when it's comparison to the good things. What is best? And then being open to God redefining and reinterpreting what those things are, which is really hard. Let's move to some of the examples of what heavenly-mindedness looks like, right? What does it look like to have drive, unction, and focus for heavenly things above earthly things? And these are all examples of Paul, right? Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Right? That we just live in an incubator of comfort and convenience. And I mean, I, I don't drive <laughs> with this verse in my heart most days. I expect to get there expediently. I don't expect people to cut me off. I expect people to do what they're supposed to do while driving, right? I mean, all of the, just pick an area of your life and it's easy how I can react to when comfort and convenience are not there. I'm bothered by that. And yet... My goodness, Scripture is just rife with how God uses suffering to create a humility and a dependence, which is really good, which is what the next verse is about. 2 Corinthians 12.10. This is basically the, the thorn in the flesh that he implored God to, to remove it. It was tormenting Paul. It was tormenting him. This, this is not a casual inconvenience. This is something that had him distraught. And what was, what was the answer? My grace is sufficient, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Has anybody ever been there? I've been there this year, struggling with fear and anxiety at a level that I haven't for a very, very long time, not understanding exactly why, and saying, God, would you take it from me? Because there's work to be done. <laughs> and I think God's just been, yeah, there is work to be done. The work is meant to be done here because I need to be more dependent. 
I need to be more broken. I need to be less arrogant. I need to be less assumptive or presumptive that I could accomplish what he wants me to do when I can't. He can only accomplish it. And so I need a season of brokenness. I didn't want it, but it's good. But how I respond to that season of brokenness is where's my drive? Where's my affection? At the end of the day, that's where Paul arrives. He says, therefore, I am well content. So easy to say. So hard to feel. With weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. God, if, if, if when I'm at my weakest is when you're most glorified, give me that. That is really hard. But that's dying to self, right? That's being raised in a new creation. And then, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. That I've had much and I've had little, and I'm just content. I'm just content. My goodness, this is hard, again, in America in particular, because... Every advertisement tells us why life would be better with something and we deserve something and we have a void because of something. And if we're not really careful, we'll believe it, right? Even if we don't say it, we just start thinking that way. We start moving finances that way. We start orientating our life that way. And, and it's just, we need to be heavenly minded. So why is this so hard? <laughs> It's the paradox of faith, right? We give to receive. We lose to gain. We die to live. All nonsensical in the logic of this world, right? It's not what they teach us in college. It's not what they teach us in the job. It's not what they teach in most homes around the world. And yet, this is illogically heaven sent. It's the truest reality we can possibly know. And where we live, yeah, this isn't reality. This isn't what's really going on. What's really going on is Christ has died and there's a savior that people don't know and we should be compelled to love him and then compelled to share him because there's a day. And we're not going to have this fight any longer and this struggle with sin and these discouragements and all these things. It's going to be, we're going to be glorified as He's going to be glorified and all that's revealed. That's, that's where things are headed. That's the truest reality that we can possibly know. So today, we have to subjugate our wants to a better reality, right? And that's hard. We have to take our agenda every day and we have to say... God, here's my agenda. Here's the expectations that I had today on the way that my wife is going to treat me, on the way that my children are going to turn out, on the way that my job's going to go, on the way that the medical test is going to come out. Everything in life that we have expectations for. And we have to hold it like this, right? To allow God to be God, to be sovereign and good because He knows better and we just trust and it's so hard. I was reflecting on this and just thinking of an example in my life. And <laughs> my son, Drew, that you've obviously seen around here, he uh, has played football over the past several years. And um, a few years back, he had a particular teammate that uh, 
for whatever reason, I guess just got frustrated with Drew consistently or whatever the case may be, but in practice, he would consistently deliver a cheap shot to my son. That when the play was over, when he wasn't looking from behind, and, and I mean, I'm a dad, and that's my boy, right? And so what counsel would your dad have given you? Right? We're Americans. We're Texans. Are you kidding me? So I found that. I found that coming up in me, right? And I found up, okay, we're, we're going to deal with this, right? We're going to find the moment when he's not looking. We're going to find the moment when, because you do that, he'll never do that again. Part of what's perpetuating this is you're not. And then I, I'm like, so where is that based in Scripture? It's based in Texan. It's based in American. But I, I read Scripture and it says that if they strike one cheek, turn the other. That it says that vengeance is the Lord's. And I'd love to say that was super easy for me. That was really hard for me because everything in the dad in me wanted to instruct him in the way that you deal with this. And I couldn't because Scripture compelled me. And you know what? I had to say, Drew, I'm so proud of you because you've handled this better than I would have. You've turned the other cheek. You haven't taken vengeance. You've just gotten up and you've gone back to the huddle and you just let it go. Who's to say what testimonies like that don't do in a lost world? And so it's not easy to think this way or to live this way. And earthly thinking is probably more pervasive than, than we imagine it to be. And thus we've got to be so prayerful and so much time in the Word to be able to even see and discern where this is going on. So how do we apply this text to our lives, right? And, and again, we all read and study Scripture differently, but just something that, that somebody taught me at one point that's always been helpful is after studying a text is from this text, you know, what would God have me know? What would He have me feel? And what would He have me do? And then I can walk away praying through those. And so as I thought about it from this text, Denia Community Church, what would, what would God have us know? that your life is Christ. The accusation of that should fit. The people around us should see that authentically, right? That our life is Christ. But it's from this identity that we are compelled to live for Him, not earning it. And that's a really, really important distinction to draw. How should we feel? Uh, we should be so grateful you know, rescued and transferred, redeemed and forgiven. If you've walked with Christ for any season of time, sometimes it feels old hat. You know, we don't hardly remember sometimes that old identity. And so sometimes just being reminded of those events that have led me to be the identity that I am now. And, and motivated, right? Motivated for... That drive, that unction, that focus, those affections to be a reality in my life. Because at the end of the day, that's, that's, that's the spirit-led sanctification that God will do within me. And, and I wish I could stand up here at 50 and say, boy, that's easy, but it's not. 
Like I wrestle with it every day. And it's frustrating. But I want, I, I want to wake up. I want to wake up with that unction, with that compulsion to love him better today than I did yesterday. And then what do we do? You worship because God is that good and Colossians is a picture of all the reasons why Jesus is worthy of our praise and our honor. We should reflect and evaluate again. Some of this is so subtle where earthly mindedness kind of, kind of slips in that it's worth, uh, it's worth a good cup of coffee sometime this week when you're alone and it's quiet. And I realize for moms that might be 3 a.m. <laughs> it's really hard. But when you can find the time to just say, God, what would you show me? What would you reveal in me? Where, where am I thinking with an early, earthly mindset instead of a heavenly mindset? And then finally, we just commit ourselves each and every day to try to live that way, to try to think that way, to try to love that way, um, because it's, it's worship, right? Would you all pray with me? Father God, we, um, Father, we love you. Father, this is such a good text, but it's a convicting text. Father, it's so good because you speak to our identity in Christ, and if there's anyone here that's not feeling that today, that's not thinking about that today, that just needs to be reminded, Father, I pray that you would remind them. I pray that they would, be, they would feel forgiven again. I pray that they would feel redeemed again, that they would feel loved again, that a fresh compulsion to love you would, would, would awaken in our hearts. And Father, I pray that we would be given insight and discernment into where we're earthly-minded instead of heavenly-minded. And uh, Father, would you honor yourself with our lives? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.